was just telling my brother a few minutes ago that all the, the years, the many years that we've been looking at this tabernacle, I never was asked a question that was so penetrating as the one which asked, when was the tabernacle built? Well, I was always giving the simple question, in the, at least answer, in the wilderness. But when I began to think of it, I realized a wonderful line of truth that this tabernacle was built at a very peculiar time in the history of Israel. Let's look at the map for a moment. They came out of that land of Egypt. We read there in Exodus 6 that God was going to bring them out and he was going to bring them into that promised land. It was a brief journey. It was only 11 days journey up to uh, the land, to Kadesh, which is at the southern part of the land. And they were, came across the Red Sea, which is another aspect of the cross of Christ, the redemption here through the blood of the little lamb, that lamb, and then the crossing of the Red Sea, which gave them total and complete deliverance from the mighty power of the army of Egypt. And they stood on the wilderness side, and they looked back and they saw every one of that vast army, 600 chariots, all gone. The enemy destroyed. A picture for the believer of the total deliverance from the power of Satan that which you and, in which you and I find ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that we all realize that because many Christians in type are out of Egypt, are redeemed by the blood of Christ, but they never know deliverance and they're really just in type in that area there. So it's very important for us to realize that deliverance also is the result of the, of the work of the cross of Christ and we have been forever delivered from the power of Satan if we are obedient. Positionally we are, but experimentally it depends on the state of soul of each one of us here in this audience. They crossed there and they found themselves in this wilderness. We had to change this map a little bit. The wilderness was actually down here. But to save space, we put the, here was the wilderness. They went into this mount of God and there Moses was called up to that mountain and given instruction to build the tabernacle uh, that we are reading of now in the 25th to the 40th chapter of Exodus. They built it. When they, it took them two years to build this uh, magnificent building. And then when they got it built, they went in a straight line to go into the land, right up to Kadesh Barnea, carrying this tabernacle with them. But when they got there to Kadesh, through unbelief, they said, we're not able to go into that land. Ten of those searchers came back and said, we're not able. Two of them Caleb and Joshua, the future leader, they said, we are well able to go in. And they refused to go in. God said, all right, you won't go into the land. I'm going to send you out into the wilderness. And you're going to wander around until every person over 20 years of age is dead. So Hold was the youngest person that went into 
the land. 20 years of age, and then they were wandering for 40. You. Yeah. How many? Yeah. No, you. Yeah. How old was the youngest person that went into the land? Yes. Well, everybody over 20 was going to die, and they wandered for 40 years. How many, how old would the fellow that's 20, and he wanders for 40 years old, is he? Try it again. 60, right. 60 years of age. Yeah, 60 years of age. And they wandered in that wilderness for 38 years. Now, they were in such a bad state of soul that when they were told this, they said, oh, we'll go into the land. And in their own confidence and strength, they tried to go in. And their army was beaten immediately. And they went out, and there they were totally discouraged. But having brought this on themselves because of their unbelief, now they were, would be in no mood to build this magnificent tabernacle at that stage. But God knew that they would fail. He knew that they were going to need a tabernacle. And so they had it all built and ready for their wandering of these 38 years. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it just tells us that though we have so often sinned, and I'm sure we are all hanging our heads in shame when we think of our life since we were saved, how little there is that we are proud of, and conversely we're so ashamed, aren't we, of our life since we are saved. God in his grace has made provision now, not for sin, but for that old nature that we still have, which God says is dead, and he tells us in Romans 6 to reckon that old life as dead, made every provision, made this wonderful, uh, in, in, their, in Israel's history, this tabernacle for them, and so he has made provision for you and for me to go on, whereby are given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So we have now the equipment to go through this life now for God's glory. Four times John in his writings said that your joy might be full. So here they are with this tabernacle now uh, to, to carry them through this wilderness. They didn't carry it out. If you read in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is giving his great review of Israel's history, why he tells us there that instead of offering these sacrifices of which we have been reading, why they were worshipping the stars and the moon. And it would appear that they didn't carry this out at all. So you say, well, what was the use of it all? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. Now, those verses are a quick review of this, these days of which we are reading in the tabernacle and the great warnings, but now the 11th verse is for us. One of you boys like to read the verse there? Would you like to read the verse good and loud now, 11th verse, so that we'll all hear it and all bear it in mind and not forget it. That's right. Now all these things happened unto them for example, and they are written 
right. Thank you. Now that is plain, isn't it? That all these things happened to them. Everything that these people were doing, God was making them do it. And all of the things that we have in the Old Testament are written down, not for them, but for whom? Us. Are we applying this to ourselves now? Are we saying, well, this tabernacle is so interesting? Yes, but it's only going to do you and me good and benefit if we say, oh, God made this whole thing happen for me, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Why would it say the end of the world? Because the world's history ended at the cross. God was finished testing man, tested him for 40 years. No one would obey him. No one lived for God's glory. The Lord Jesus, speaking reverently, would say, I will go down to that earth and I'll live on that earth for God's glory. And that's what he did. And now God has found all his delight, as I said before, in his son. But that was 4,000 years after the fall of man. And as it were, God couldn't wait, speaking reverently, I trust. God couldn't wait for the day when his beloved son would come to this earth and die for God's glory and for the blessing of mankind and their salvation. He gives us the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that this tabernacle now is one grand and glorious picture of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have not the shadows. We're looking at the shadows, but the shadows are just bringing to our attention the substance, glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have learned that we are priests. We have changed from being a person who has brought the sinner, uh, his sacrifice to this brazen altar, the cross, for you and for me. We now are priests. We now have access into God's presence and we have this labor to wash and so it is a provision to make us fit to come into God's presence. The next thing is that we see these boards. Now the boards are another view of us as believers, not as priests this way time, but now as members of the body of Christ and all their forming one building. That's what every believer on the face of the earth is doing. He is a picture of the one body of Christ. And so now we're going to look at the boards. Here is a rough board. As we were saying before, this is what we were by nature. And now we have been made fit to stand in God's house we're aboard. Another line of truth for us. Individually now we are members of the body of Christ. So let's go back now to Exodus and we will read about the boards. We remember that the wood as we have in our key here is humanity. This time we're going to apply it to us as human beings. Chapter 26, verse 15. 
And thou shalt make boards for the tabernacle of Shittim wood standing up. I have to stop there. Here is the board that can't stand up. It's us as in nature. has no strength to stand up. And over it goes. That's us. In our unsaved state, we can't stand before God. We can't stand up at all. But the boards of the tabernacle can stand up. Here is a board. Now, as you can see, it's covered with gold. It's not in its natural state. You and I have the ability now to stand. And we just read in that verse, it says, standing up. And so there is the board standing up. So one of you boys is going to ask me, take your hand away, right? But I'm not going to, because God isn't going to take his hand off me either. And we stand now. That's what that said. That verse said. Right? The first thing that it says about the board is that it's standing up. And that's what we are now. We are able to stand by the hand of God on us and keeps us. So I'm not going to take my hand away. God never does. And he keeps us. And kept by the power of God. First Peter 1, 5. Let's read a little bit more now about the board. First thing it was, there, as I said, standing up. Never forget that. We can't stand by ourselves. God causes us to stand. Galatians, I think it's 5, verse 1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has set us free. So we stand now. Now the next verse. Verse 17. Two, <coughs> no, verse 16. Ten boards shall be the, ten cubits shall be the length of a board. And a cubit and a half shall be the breadth of one board. Now here is, here are the boards, 48 boards, 10 on one side, <laughs> 20 on this side, 20 on that side, 6 on the back, 1 on each corner, making 48 in all. 12 is administrative responsibility. Four is the universal aspect of truth. Forty-eight. Twelve times four. The boards all standing up and making, and all being interchangeable. When we were making this model, we, I, gave, I wrote a number on each one of the boards so that it would be one, two, three, four, five, and so on. And as we read on, we discovered that the boards were all interchangeable. Sometimes would a board would be out in the prominence. Sometimes it would be way back here in the dark. And so we might say, well, this is a much more privileged position, never the, but it is not so, because here were the boards that were going to be forming uh, the, uh, the uh, sanctuary, the holy place where God dwelt. Sometimes the board would be in different places. So we didn't know what to do about, we took all the numbers off, and then we discovered that they, as being all interchangeable, they would have to be exactly able to have what are known on the bottom here as tenons or fingers, two of them, and they're not 
holes put in with doweling there, but they were carved away. They're part of each board, two of them to keep the board standing firm, and it was going to <coughs> uh, stand on silver sockets. The board is able to stand. It's interchangeable. Every board is the same size. Every one of us here who knows the Lord is our Savior, we are of one size. That's why we don't have a minister. That's why the very thought of having someone in charge of an assembly is just running contrary to the grace of God. As priests, we are all equal. Those two remaining sons of Aaron, Eliezer, and Ithamar, they never had any specific work individually. They could do it, uh, either one of them. Equally so the boards. They were all made of one size. So when we were building these boards, we built and made a little template. And so when the boys brought these boards, we, we put them into the template. If they would fit into these holes, turn them over, fit in, all right. But many times the board, uh, these tenons were in the wrong place, a little bit too far out, rejected. They had to be conforming. So it is, beloved ones, in your life and mine. As a Christian, I don't by nature like to conform. We like to have our own individual view of things, don't we? And somebody says, well, that's the way you see truth. I don't see it that way. That's impossible. There's no such a thing as incompatibility among saints. When we are all obedient, we are all being taught of the Spirit of, by the Spirit of God, and we all learn the same thing. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10 says, Beloved, I beseech you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that there be no divisions amongst you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same judgment and the same opinion. I'm not quoting it exactly correctly. But there is the position in which every believer is in. If you and I are willing to bow to the authority of Scripture, we're all going to think alike. There is going to be absolute unity. unity. What is the motive that is going to bring this about? One motive, and that is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And if every one of us here in this audience this afternoon has that one desire in your heart to exalt Christ, we are going to be of one mind on all the basic and important points of Scripture. It cannot be otherwise. 1 Corinthians 1.10 When there are differences of opinion, it's because someone is pressing some opinion of their own. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 it says, There must needs be divisions or schisms amongst you that they which are approved may be made manifest. And so important then it is for us to realize as boards, we're all the same size, we're all made out of wood, we're all uh, uh, interchangeable as far as our position is concerned. And then we're going to read a little bit more about that board. Verse 19 of Exodus 26. And thou shalt make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards. Two sockets under one board for his two tenons and two sockets under another board for his two
two tenants. And then on the other side, on the north side, this would be the north side, similar number of boards and tenants. And 22nd verse describes the boards at the back. So now, here we have the board, and we're going to discover that there were tenon, at least there were uh, sockets. If you turn over, we should see it possibly a little bit farther on in Exodus 39 or 38. Here shows the immensity of this tabernacle. Verse 24. We haven't come to the gold yet. Maybe I shouldn't read that verse. Let's read verse 25. And the silver of them that were numbered of the congregation was an hundred talents and a thousand seven hundred and threescore and fifteen shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary. Well, I calculated that out and it was four and three-quarter tons of silver. And there were a hundred of these sockets so that each socket would weigh about 110 or 120 pounds. And there were two of them, each one under one in, in which one tenon fitted and the other the other. And there they were standing in so, uh, silver sockets. The board with all its beautiful gold never touched the sand. It rested in the silver. And silver, as we know from first epistle of Peter, chapter 1, Verse 18 says, redeemed, not with silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. Now, that's your and my standing in Christ now. He's our redemption, and we have been separated by the silver from this world. And so the whole tabernacle just stood on silver. The whole of the church stands on the precious blood of Christ. It is not only separating us from this world, separating us from our sins, and it separates us in many other ways too. The tabernacle stood in, on silver. So there were those sockets of, of silver separating them. Lastly, we won't take time to read it. There in those verses it says that every board had three rings in it. You can see them on this side and likewise on the other. And there were... Three rings down the sides, three on uh, the, the boards here, and three similarly there. And the center rod ran through the full length of the tabernacle here and here, and similarly so. Where it says in the middle, it doesn't mean that it went through the center of the board, because it says it was on the sides but it was a rod that the center rod ran the full length of the tabernacle. And then there were two divided rods on the top and they end here and two likewise on the lower side. So that would make 15 rods in all. 
But one of those rods is the continuing link. I just to say that I just submit this little thought, and that is, this is the building being held together. And in one way, it is held by the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, portrayed or illustrated by that rod that ran the full length here and here. And if you take three away from 15, you get 12. And 12 is administrative responsibility, and that is the responsibility that you and I have now to maintain that unity. Now, that unity isn't something that is to be confused with the unity of the body. That unity of the body is forever settled and held in the hands of Christ. We are forever one as in our position. But Ephesians 4 and 4 says, endeavoring to maintain the unity of the body. Now, that's not the unity of, I should say, the unity of the spirit, not the unity of the body. The body is held by the work of Christ, but the unity of the spirit is your responsibility and mine. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a responsibility to maintain that unity. The body is one. The fourth verse says there is one body. The third verse, I said fourth, it's the third verse that says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the uniting bond of peace. You have that responsibility. You might shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's all right for some. You who know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior have been bought by the blood of Christ. You're not your own, it tells us in 1 Corinthians. We're not our own now. We're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Are you glorifying God in your body? Am I? Or are we living for ourselves? Now, these are the privileges that we are speaking of, but they are coupled with the responsibility. And we don't like that responsibility side. We like to hear nice things, but it, I must, in faithfulness to the Word of God and to God Himself, bring before us the side of responsibility. Those boards were tied together by those three rings. Three is like a picture of the, of the Trinity, and also the ring is a ring of love. And we're held all making that one building, one unit by those rings of love. At the front of the tabernacle, when we assembled it, we didn't know what to do because when we put the boards into place, they start to fall out, this side and that side. And when we came to the back, we, after had studying it for a long time, we found that there were six boards across the back. There were two boards that were going to fit into the corners on an angle, and those boards would have some notches, something like this, and there were to be a ring, two rings, one other, each one of the corners, two rings up on the top, and the whole thing was locked in very solid. At the front, it was wobbly. It wouldn't stand up. One of the boys suggested we put a board across the top, and I said, you can't do that because the scripture 
doesn't show it. Tricky me, I suggested we put a wire across there to hold the boards from falling uh, out, and then I said, I can't do that either. Well, we've got the little elastics on there, like one of the sisters' comments. No elastics in the tabernacle, but there was nothing to make those boards stand up. The illustration I used of the hand, of my hand holding the board up, it is God that held that tabernacle in a remarkable way. Now then, let me use the illustration. From the outside, from the outside, Christianity looks so feeble. From the outside, the assembly gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ looks so feeble. Somebody asks us, well, what kind of a ministry do you have? Well, we don't have a ministry. Well, what kind of a charter do you have? We don't have any charter. But what kind of an organization do you have? We don't have any organization. Who is your chairman? We don't have any chairman. Well, they say, well, what do you have? Do you have some nice music? No, we don't have much nice music either. We don't have anything that keeps us going, as it were, but the Spirit of God and being gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the power. And so from the outside, it looks so feeble. But when you would come inside to the sanctuary there, oh, you see it all solid and firm and established. I stumbled onto that verse in the 73rd Psalm, which speaks of uh, not understanding the ways of the world and so much uh, thing, so many things going wrong. And then in the middle of that psalm, it says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I, and so on. Well, isn't that nice? I hope I'm putting this over. When we're on the outside, whether we're unsaved, looking at Christianity, it's so feeble. When we are not gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it looks so feeble. But when we are in the presence of the Lord, oh, we're in that sanctuary, it's so firm. I see four rings there. What's that? Oh, that's the love of God that and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of the assembly. He keeps it firm. We don't have that responsibility. But we do have the responsibility of going on in obedience to the word of God. Now, the next thing, I think I've covered that pretty well. You can read those verses in detail for yourselves. Next thing is the door. We saw the gate and the other model there, the beautiful gate of grace. It was 20 by 5, which comes out to 100 square cubits. We're going to look at this door now, and this is 10 by 10, also 100 square cubits. That other gate of grace had those beautiful colors woven into it, blue, purple, and scarlet. This door, likewise, is the same. Nothing, no hindrance there. We're going to see a hindrance as we go into the, uh, into the uh, veil, but at, on the door here, it was just that, like that door of grace. This gate was for the man who brought his sacrifice we might say, like as a sinner. He would come through, we suppose the gate is here, 
He comes through that very wide gate and he brings his sins as we learn. But now as a priest, I go through this door. But it's the same, uh, uh, the same square uh, cubits, 100 square cubits. Now, 100 is made out of 10 by 10. 10 is God as responsibility, Godward, and 100 is the ultimate. The man had the responsibility on pain of death because God had ordained it of coming through that gate. The priest has access through this door, but it's the same. And so I like to say, put it this way, that what I did when I accepted the Lord as my Savior was to see myself as a sinner and I saw that the Lord Jesus Christ was my Savior. I repented. Repent. comes from two words. Re is to turn around and pent is to think. So thinking in the opposite direction. That's what I did when I accepted the Lord as my Savior. But, beloved ones, I must do this all through my Christian life. Repentance isn't an act. It is a state of soul. And we need that state of soul of repentance. Thinking God's thoughts, not my thoughts being submissive to the word of God so that the truth that I learned as a sinner, I must build on that and learn more as I am as a believer. So those doors were the same in their total footage. It was that door that gave access to only three men could go through that door. Aaron, who is a picture of Christ, Read those first ten chapters of Hebrews and you will see the spiritual contrast to all these things of the tabernacle. Only Aaron, who is a picture of Christ, who has gone into the holiest of all, Aaron could only go through the, that door and also the veil, which we will speak of, Lord willing, tomorrow. But Aaron's two boys had access through that door in, as we're now going to go in, through that door into this one room, room had uh, the tabernacle had two rooms, the holy place and the holiest of all. Aaron had those two boys remaining, Eleazar and Ithamar. They could go through that door after having washed their hands and their feet. And the first object that they would see when they came into that holy place was the table of showbread. So let's turn now to the 25th chapter. I'll give you the reference to the door before we leave it. 26 and 36. I'll just read it quickly, you don't need to turn to it. And thou shalt make an hanging for the door of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen wrought with needlework. And five pillars there, as you see at the outside of the door, there were five pillars. We can liken that unto Hebrews 6.25, I think it is. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, 
made higher than the heavens, five pillars. We can say that it's like, I see our time is more than gone. We'll, we should stop now for 10 minutes. When some of the brothers give me little, not little, but give me uh, some of their calculations or some of their thoughts. And it's over the years that I've accumulated a lot that I'm passing on to you that somebody came up to me one time and said, uh, you said that there are just two men went into the land that had been in the wilderness. And the sister said there were three. I, uh, three? Yes, there were three. And Eliezer was the third. Yeah. Eliezer wasn't one of the men of Israel, but he was a high priest. It tells us that he was in the wilderness because when Aaron died, Eliezer in the wilderness inherited the high priesthood. And then it tells us in numbers when the land was divided that Eliezer was there with Joshua to divide up the land. So he was one, but he wasn't one of the men. He was the high priest. So I always appreciate it. One brother was just pointing out that all the silver that was there that is mentioned in the 38th chapter totaled in today's value about $10 million worth of silver. And the gold was at $500 an ounce $17 million. And the total amount of all the metal alone in weight was nine tons, nine and three quarter tons. So this was no little flimsy thing. It was a beautiful picture of the church going through the wilderness. So we'll go on now with the articles that we find in the holiest of all. And let's go in the holiest. Let's go to the 25th chapter. Twenty-third verse. And here we are now going to speak of the table of showbread. There was the model that the boys carved all by themselves. Did a beautiful job. Twelve loaves of bread. Exodus 25 and verse 23. <clears throat> Thou shalt also make a table of shittim wood, acacia wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Now this is the first time we read pure gold. The boards were covered with gold, and as our key brings before us, the divine righteousness, or the righteousness of God. That's what the boards were covered in. in they, we stand in all the righteousness of God in Christ. is isn't really correct, I don't think, to speak of the righteousness of Christ. Scripture doesn't speak of that, but it does speak of the righteousness of God in Christ. That's the position that you and I stand in as like in boards. But when it comes to pure 
gold, it is more a picture of what Christ is himself to God. Pure gold. It said two by one. In other words, it had two cubic cubits. I'll bring it out to the model of the brazen altar, put it beside it, and you will see the height of the table was where the rings were and where the grate was, where the fire was. I'll just mention that in passing and then we'll come back to it in a minute. Two brings before us the church, as I emphasized before. The bread was for the priests, which we will see about in a minute. Now let's go on. Verse 24. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold and make thereto a crown of gold round about. Crown of gold. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 says that the Lord Jesus Christ is crowned with glory and honor. Same words as glory and beauty here in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, same as the Greek in the New Testament, glory and honor. The Lord Jesus is crowned now in the glory. Verse 26, And thou shalt make for it four rings of gold, there, again, bringing before us the love. And they were in the upper corners. And put the rings in the four corners that are on the four feet thereon, thereof. Over against the border shall the rings be for the places of the staves to bear the tabernacle. And there it tells about the staves. But it doesn't say pure gold because that was more for the the. Levites to carry it, and that the table may be born with them. Now, just one little thought there. The table was for food, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who could say, I am the bread which came down from heaven. The height of the table was one and a half. The fire was one and a half. So we can put the two of them together and say that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, it's on a parallel, as it were, or the foundation or the means whereby the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be our daily food. Same height, one and a half cubits. Two cubits, as I said, bringing before us the church. The rings, the love. Every Saturday, every Sabbath day, Aaron and his two boys would have prepared 12 loaves of bread and they would have put frankincense sprinkled on top of the 12 loaves and they would come into the holy place and they would replace the 12 loaves that had been put there on the previous Saturday or Sabbath and they would take those 12 loaves and they would come out into the courtyard and there Aaron and his two boys would eat that bread. Now, as I mentioned before, 604,000 men in this vast camp alone and they would eat the bread 
12 loaves on behalf of all those men in the camp. Now, how beautiful that is for you and for me to realize that now God has reduced the 12 loaves to one loaf. It just focuses our thoughts on the privilege of being gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to eat the one loaf. There cannot be two loaves. I don't say can. There, We know that there cannot be. There is one table, one tabernacle, one God, 1 Corinthians, one Lord, Jesus Christ, one Holy Spirit, one body, one loaf, one husband, one opinion, one judgment would be the same. One, all, it's just one loaf. Now, I know that offends some, but I believe to deny that, beloved ones, is to deny a fundamental truth. God, is God divided? No. Paul wrote to the Corinthian assembly with ten points to correct in the first ten chapters of Corinthians. And the first of those uh, corrections had to do with division. It is such a dishonor to the Lord Jesus Christ for believers to be divided. It is a dishonor to the Lord. And as I so often say, how little blessed Lord Jesus he has for all his work. How little honor there is to that blessed person, that name of Jesus on this earth. Four and a half billion people in the world, how few are saved. That blood is able to save the whole four and a half billion. Of all those believers who are the Lord's, how few of us go on for the Lord? How much do we live for the Lord Jesus these days? And of all those who seek to go on, how few would be willing to say, not my thoughts, Lord Jesus, where wouldst thou have me to be? How few? How'd we don't talk about a place we talk about a glorious person. If I'm occupied with a place, I'm going to get proud. If I'm occupied with Christ as the one gathering center on this earth, I'm going to be humbled. Just the same as I am humbled when I realize that I am saved by God's grace. It doesn't make us proud. It makes us with our face in the dust to think that we're objects of God's grace and, and his mercy. Mercy. To be gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is like being saved over again. What I had to do when I got saved was to surrender my thoughts and turn around like the two that met the man bearing the pitcher of water and let that Spirit of God lead me on to Christ. I have to do the same thing as a believer. And when we are willing to do that, it makes nothing of us but everything of Christ. How much do you and I want to honor the Lord Jesus in our life? You boys and girls, younger ones, that know the Lord as your Savior. Oh, are we going on for the Lord? Are we feeding on that bread each day? Let's turn to the 6th of John and see how beautifully that is brought out.
verse 53. Notice carefully. We have to read the Bible slowly. You can't read it quickly. We miss points if we do. Verse 53. John 6. Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, Except ye eat, E-A-T, the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Now there is one act that is necessary. If I don't eat of Christ once, I'm lost. I'm on my way to hell. But I eat once. Eat once. Now notice the next verse. Whoso eateth, it's changed now. It's not eat, it's eateth. It's the imperfect tense. It's the going on now. It's the repeating. And it says, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. Has eternal life. Notice the 56th verse. He that eateth my flesh, drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him. 57. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. I put it simply this way. One look to Christ is life. One look to Christ is life. Every after look is the power of living. One look to Christ is life. Every after look, that's what this is, these verses are saying. Every after look. Do you want to have a happy life for God's glory in your life? I'm sure we all would raise our hands and say yes. It's a question of not salvation. We have salvation. I'm not going to be going to Jesus for dying for me on the cross, that I did, and I, I don't mean to say that in that way. I'm thankful to the Lord Jesus for dying for me. But now he wants you and me to be eating from him, eating of him. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Are we feeding on Christ? I don't want to embarrass you, younger ones or any one of us, but are we feeding on the word of God? That's what we need. Individually, parents might read the Word of God to us. That's a nice thing. I had my parents do that to me. I've done that by God's grace with my children. Oh, we need to do it for ourselves. Do you want to grow in your soul? Read the Word of God. Don't read too much. Don't read a whole chapter. Just read a little section. You parents, don't read too much at once. Read a small section of the Scriptures. Feeding on Christ. That's what they did there every day, every Saturday. They ate, and who ate? Aaron and his two boys. Two boys. On behalf of all those people in that vast camp, two men with their father, why, there's the two or three gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus. Christ is the one gathering center. We're feeding on him. I'm not speaking only about remembering the Lord as our daily food. Oh, we need to be doing this every day. And if we are, 
oh, then we're going to be wanting to respond to the Lord Jesus. I look into your faces and I say to you, do you know, know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? You might nod your head and say yes. Are you doing what the Lord Jesus asked you to do? Are you remembering the Lord Jesus in his death? I'm not going to ask you to respond, but I'm just going to put this onto your conscience. Do you pray to the Lord? And you say, yes, I do. What are you praying? Well, I thank the Lord and I ask him for things. That's nice. And he asks you for something. What is the response? Are we going to be just so cold in our soul that we're going to ask the Lord to help us in our life and then when he says one thing, this do in remembrance of me. Don't ask me to do anything. Is that what we're doing? Yes, we are. I speak very plainly. It's very important for us to realize that if we're going to grow in our souls, there must be obedience to the word of God. And as the result of it, happiness and joy and glory brought to the Lord Jesus. Well, there is the table of showbread. The Lord Jesus could say, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Feeding on him. It was always in that place, eaten every Saturday by Aaron and his two boys. Any questions that you would like to ask any on these points, just feel free to raise your hand, any of you brothers. Now we go on to the next subject, and that is the golden candlestick. Candlestick was always on the south side, the table of showbread always on the right. There it was. We bought this in Nazareth last year when we were there. We had made the golden candlestick and we had made it with the arms shorter on the outside, kind of a V. But when we were in Rome, we saw the Arch of Titus, which was built around the year 80 and has been preserved ever since. And wonderful to say it, that there after Titus had won the great victory and destroyed Jerusalem, sad to say, because of their disobedience, he took all these articles that were remaining in the temple and he brought them back to Jerusalem and he made the Jewish slayers, uh, defeated ones carry these articles through Rome. And the memorial of it is preserved in the, uh, the Arch of Titus, and it's underneath. Uh, some of you have seen those pictures of the Arch, but it's very, very thick. It would probably be as far as from here to that wall, thick. And inside it is a bas-relief of this very article taken right out of the temple in Jerusalem at that time. So we... We bought one of these because we saw the exact replica of the way it was in the Arch of Titus. Seven lamps here across. It was made out of beaten gold. The Lord Jesus was beaten in order to be the light of the world. Let's read it now in 25th chapter and in the little farther on in that chapter. Verse 31. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold, 
Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. His shaft, that would be the centerpiece, and his branches, three on each side, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers shall be of the same. And it describes all the beauties of the candlestick. Verse 37, And thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof, seven is the perfect number, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. For the verse it says is beaten. Of beaten work, yes. Thank you. One piece of gold beaten into this shape. Think of the wonderful wisdom that these men must have had. Seven lamps, all was burning every day. Aaron went in and kept those lamps burning. Just for a, a minute, we'll, I'll cover that later. Uh, the only light that was in that holy place was the candles. Seven of them. Lamps burning by the oil, a picture of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus anointed by the Holy Spirit, was the light of the world. But... I might be maybe a, a little more accurate in saying that God is light. Not only is the Lord Jesus. I say that because the Lord Jesus, while he was here on this earth, was the light. But he's gone now. And you and I are the light of the world. Whereas this candlestick, I believe, more accurately, is a picture of God as light. The first word that we read of in the scriptures that God said was, let there be light. God is light. Aaron, when he went into that candle, into that holy place each morning to clean the lamps, just a little thought and passing. he would go in with fire taken with tongs off, off the brazen altar. He would go in there and in his other hand he had a handful of frankincense. He would come into one of the objects that we'll talk about later, the golden altar of incense. He would pour, he put the coals onto that altar and then he would pour the frankincense onto the coals and that holy place, the room, would be filled with the cloud of ointment, uh, of the, the, that ointment, having been put on the, on the coals. I'd like to apply this in the assembly. When there are matters that have to be dealt with, sometimes they are soiling. Just like in order to keep that lamp, those lamps burning, Aaron had to come and trim the lamps every day. When the assembly has to deal with matters, it's so important for us 
first of all to get into that state of soul as an assembly in order to be able to deal with the matters and what is required. Nothing less than to get into the presence of the Lord Jesus and to realize that the cross of Christ is the standing on which you and I have this blessed access to him. And when we do that, then the room is going to be filled with the fragrance of Christ. And then the assembly is going to be in a state of soul to clean the lamps and to deal with matters. It is so important for us to be in self-judgment ourselves, individually and collectively, and then we're going to be in that state of soul uh, to be able to, to go on. Otherwise, we're going to be acting like judges and looking down our nose at uh, others that may have fallen away. And so we're going to be able to, uh, to intercede for them, but it must be on the basis of Christ and Christ crucified. Then the fragrance will fill the room. Now then, one last article, and then we're through for today. And that is the golden altar of incense. Small object. I'll put it beside the brazen altar to compare the two altars. When the scriptures speak of the altar, it's always referring to the brazen altar. When it's this one, it is the golden altar of incense. The brazen altar was 37 and a half times the cubic content of the little altar. Let's read it first. The 30th chapter, first verse. And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense thereupon. Uh, of shittim wood shalt thou make it. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. Four square shall it be, and two cubits shall be the height thereof. The horns thereof shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof and the sides thereof, round about and the horns thereof, and thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about, and two golden rings shalt thou make to it under the crown of it by the two corners thereof. Upon the two sides of it shalt thou make it, and they shall be for the places for the staves to bear it withal. And thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put it Notice this, before the veil, that is, by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat, that is, over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. So that's all we need to read. Now then, we recall the first altar was made out of wood covered with brass. Our key reminds us that the brass is a picture of the testing or the endurance of the Lord Jesus. It's the cross of Christ. It's the foundation of all entrance into God's presence, the brazen altar. It was large. It was square. It had the horns on it, telling of the surrender of the Lord Jesus in his power and his wisdom 
He gave up everything. I shouldn't say giving up his wisdom. But he surrendered all to God. It was for everyone. It was large. But now we come to this other altar and it is small. It's only two cubic cubits. And the two, I remind you again, picture of the church or the two or the three. And it was now not for a sacrifice. No animals came inside there. But we read that it has horns. So why would it have horns if it didn't have anything to do with the animal? I like to apply it in this way. That is, if you and I are going to worship God, it must be on the same basis as what the Lord Jesus did. The surrender of all our thoughts and our all our vaunted power or influence or whatever it might be. I must come prostrate before the Lord if I am going to be truly worshiping him. Now, when I get cold in my soul, worship goes down and service comes up. We know that, don't we? Because it makes something of me. But worship makes nothing of us and everything of Christ. And that is what we learn, I believe, from the fact that the golden altar had horns as well as the brazen altar. It's the surrender of everything of ourself. And it's the bringing of the coal from the brazen altar and laying that coal on the golden altar and the pouring of the frankincense, which is a picture of the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ, brought out in all their fullness when those graces were poured on the altar for God's glory and the blessing of souls. But this would give now an object for the priests, the sons of Aaron. And they could come to this golden altar. They couldn't go any farther, but they could come there and they could do the service of the tabernacle in there. You'll notice that I emphasized the reading of that last verse. It emphasizes its closeness to this veil and also to the object which was supreme, the ark, the presence of God itself, himself. And so it intimates that there was closeness between the two of them. Now this is a little bit harder for the younger ones to understand. This is the provision that God makes for you and for me while we're here on this earth. We have the golden altar for access to God. But when you read in Hebrews, and there is a quick summary, ninth or 10th chapter of Hebrews, it doesn't mention that golden altar. I take it to mean this, that positionally now, we'll come to this tomorrow when the veil is gone, we have access right into God's presence, and as such we don't need the golden altar for prayer uh, to God. We have access right into God's presence. But you realize that we're not yet in heaven. We're down here on this earth. And as it were, the veil is still there. I'm not, I'm not in heaven yet. I have access and I am seated there, as God tells me in, in uh, Romans chapter 8 and in Ephesians chapter 2, 
We're already glorified. That's the way God sees us. No veil. We don't need the golden altar because we can have access right into God's presence. But then, as I said, now we're still here on this earth. Not in heaven yet. So the veil is there. We need the golden altar for our worship and praise to God. One of our hymns says, To all our prayers and praises, Christ adds his sweet perfume. And love the censer raises these odors to consume. Someone was speaking about the the uh, censer. Well, in Hebrews, it doesn't it doesn't mention the golden altar, but it does say that the censer has gone in right into the holiest of all. That emphasizes the fact that it is still the fire that came from that brazen altar that goes right into the presence of God. Yes, one other thing. It had two, it was two cubic contents and that would be bringing before us the two. It only has two rings. The other had four. That brings, as I said before, the universal uh, availability of the cross of Christ to all, in all directions. But this is small. And this is for worship. And this has two rings, the church. So as we see the difference between that uh, large brazen altar and this little one, we realize, beloved ones, what a privilege it is for you and me to be able to be gathered by God's Spirit to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not gathered to his person. We're gathered to the authority of his name. And when we are then he gives us the assurance of his blessed presence. And so here was a very little altar available to every believer on the face of the earth, but taken up by how few. But what a privilege now, beloved ones, as we close our talk this afternoon. What a privilege it is for you and for me to be gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it? Is it a joy for you and for me? Or is it a chore? Is it a routine when we are gathered Lord's Day morning? Or are we prepared Saturday night for Lord's Day morning? The greatest privilege on the face of the earth. Nothing closer than heaven. I've told my children for years. Nothing closer to heaven than to be gathered by God's grace, into the holy presence of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth, failures as we are, cleansed by the blood of Christ, kept clean by the washing of the word, kept clean. If I come into the Lord's presence, as I said before, in an unworthy way, I see the bread there on the table and I just say to myself, a loaf of bread there. But, oh, when we are conscious of the presence of the Lord Jesus, we say, there's the body of Christ in type. And then your heart and mind is not going to be occupied with being saved. We don't gather, we aren't gathered Lord's Day morning to be thanking the Lord for saving our souls. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on the cross. But now we are here to remember who that blessed one is, Son of God, become flesh 
went down to those depths of humiliation and shame and spitting and forsaking. Blessed Savior, what he endured. That blessed body that went down so low to be insulted. The, the hairs of his cheeks pulled out by this world. Spit running down his blessed face. Naked upon that cross of shame and humiliation. That blessed body. Now, in the glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please to dwell in that body of humiliation, now glorified forever in the heavens, in heaven. That's the one that we remember. That's the one that has won our hearts and our affections. Has he won yours? Has he won mine? Do we set aside everything else when it's the Lord's glory and presence and his authority? May the Lord just win our hearts more and more and our affections and our willingness to bow to the word of God for his glory, not for our glory, for his glory. Then we're going to be bringing honor to the blessed Lord Jesus. Then we're going to be able to pray with confidence to the Lord. Then we're going to be absolutely assured of answered prayers so that we would be living on this earth for his glory until we hear his blessed voice. Let's bow in prayer.